Good job, Lakeside. You guys are awesome. Look at you guys just connecting. You guys remember this song? It's making me happy. Where's it from? Yes, there are other old people in here. Thank you. You make me feel welcome. Early 1970s, I was a prolific TV watcher back in the day. You had the Brady Bunch and Scooby-Doo and the Super Friends. And every Saturday night at about 9 o'clock, I don't know why my parents let me watch The Love Boat. That's why I am the way that I am. But this is the old days, right? This is before VCRs. Remember before VCRs? Like back in that day, young boys and girls, if you missed it, you missed it. <laughs> My parents used to say that to me. One year I missed The Wizard of Oz. You missed it, you missed it. And next year it'll be on again, Sean. Sorry, go cry yourself to sleep on your giant pillow. And that's the way it went. Before VCRs, the dark ages. Man, how about before personal computers? Remember before that? You know, I, I did my, my papers in college on an IBM uh, uh, electric typewriter. And because I couldn't spell, I had to have the correcto tape that went in there. You, you, you corrected it, and then you took it back out and then typed the right letter. And it took me forever to type my papers until I met this girl named Holly, who could spell anything. That's what I said, too. It's funny. Yeah. And I said, hey, this is a great ma- match here. You type all my papers. This is good. And it was before computers or before cell phones. You know, before cell phones, if you had to make a call, you're out and about. You had to go to one of those things called a payphone. I actually saw one of those things the other day. They're still around. It's remarkable. And some of you had a pager, and so you're driving, and you get paid, and you got to pull over, and you got to have change. You have change. You got to, you know, under the carpet. Where, where's the money? Hey, can I borrow some change to make a phone call? It's very important. I got page. This is... This is the dark ages, people, before cell phones. How about, how about before smartphones? I mean, it just keeps on getting better. You know, before smartphones, I used to carry this huge thing around called a day planner. Do you guys remember those? Does anybody still use day planners? I have a friend that actually is retro. He went right back. Yeah, I'm staring at you, dude. You're right here. I mean, it's... It's like going back to vinyl. It's just the coolest thing. Going back to paper, you know, the, those, those day planners. It's awesome. Or how many of you still carry a map in your car or a map book? Anybody? It's okay. Raise your hand. Be proud. Now, that map book's not going to reroute you when you go the wrong way. I'm just saying. But for those of, of us that don't carry the map book, we're going to need it one day. You know, the cell service is going to be out. We're going to be in trouble. This is, this is like life before. What was life like for you before. Maybe, maybe a decade ago, maybe a decade ago was before you got that job or before your child was born or before your grandkids were born or before you moved into that new house. What was life like before for you? Maybe before for you is, is a hard memory. Because before is where we used to live, it's, and it can be sort of a mixed bag. Maybe it was beautiful, but maybe it wasn't so good. What was life like before your marriage broke up? Before you lost that job, before you had that friendship break, or maybe you lost that loved one. There's before, and we live in the after. Or for some of you, maybe it feels this morning like you're living in more of an aftermath. 
and you're looking at the before and you're going, man, I, I wish I could go back to that. It was so beautiful the way, the way life was. Or maybe you're in the afternoon, you're like, I, I don't want to go back there. But for better or for worse, we're all affected by the before. And we live in this place where some of us are asking the question, which is common to all people, man, how do I get through this? How do I keep going? How do I live in the after? We might be looking back and saying, God, how did I end up here? And why this? Why now? And oftentimes there's these lines of demarcation between the then and now, between the before and after. And we can remember when we just sort of crossed over that line. Sometimes it's in our collective conscience. And all we have to do in our culture is say a word. And we remember before, before Katrina before Sandy, or Sandy Hook, or Ferguson, or Boston, or the big one, 9-11. Do you remember before 9-11? There's before, and then there's the after. And we sometimes just struggle deeply with the question of how do I believe in the after? How do I have faith in the after? And so we've been in this series now for several weeks called Faith in Exile. And when we sort of connect to that idea and the emotion of it, then I think we start to enter the story that's told in the scriptures and how the ancient Israelites felt right around 586 B.C., And actually, all the way through, up and through the time of Jesus, there was this sense of, man, I wish we could go back to before. Now we're in the after. What are we going to do? Because in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar shows up with the Babylonians, and they sack Jerusalem. They crush the city. They destroy it. And they destroy the two most important things in any ancient city. They destroy the temple, and they destroy the wall. The temple in an ancient city was the identity. It was the connection point. It was the community point. It was their connection with God. It was their connection with one another. It was the most important thing in an ancient city. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in. They destroy the temple. It was a beautiful temple. It was a giant temple. But it's gone. It's leveled. And he takes all of the gold and all of the precious things out of the temple, and he takes them back to Babylon. And then he wrecks the wall. And the wall was a close second in terms of the most important things. There was the temple and the wall. And a wall in an ancient city said something to all of the other people around that nation. It said, this city is healthy. It's healthy economically. It's healthy politically. It's healthy socially. Now, theologians have a word for reading the Bible in an incorrect way, and one of those words is to read it anachronistically, the opposite of your time. In other words, we can read through the lens of our time and take it back and superimpose it on the context of the Scriptures. And so the wall around Jerusalem is not the same conversation about walls that's going on today. And whatever your belief about that wall, it's not the same concept that we're talking about when we talk about the wall around an ancient city. This wall was not around the nation. It was just around the hub. 
It's like a wall being around a palace or, or, or the White House or, or, or an important bank or something like that. It said we have to protect the heart and the brains of what's going on in our nation. And actually the ancient Israelites were told over and over again to be kind to the foreigner, to let them in, to deal with them. And the, actually the gates that were in the wall, there were all these gates around Jerusalem. They would open up for business during the day and everybody would stream in and they would do business and then they would leave around sunset. And then they would close up shop until the next day. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he wrecks the wall. And now there's no temple and there's no wall. Devastation. Absolute devastation. In fact, to kind of wrap our minds around it, because we weren't there and we don't get it and it's hard to realize, maybe you remember your history books or maybe you remember watching a movie or maybe you were uh, on the computer and you Googled post-World War II Europe and it gives you this idea of the devastation that must have been a reality for those ancient people in Israel. Just broken. And this is in Folsom. We're not like this, but sometimes our hearts are like that, right? They're just devastated. Sometimes our families are like that. We, we have these homes, and we paint the front door, and we manicure the lawn, but if we open the door, what's, what's the reality? We know that there's pain. We know that there's devastation sometimes in our lives. We live in this broken world with broken hearts, broken people. Nebuchadnezzar took uh, most of the Israelites and he carted them off to Babylon. That's what we've been talking about. Brad's been talking about this idea. He takes them out into captivity and a really long exile. And he leaves the poorest of the poor, the most vulnerable in the land, in that devastation. And the ones that were carted off, they wrote songs on the way. The Hebrew people were prolific songwriters. They were poets. There's a, there's a huge book right in the middle of the Bible called Psalms, and it's all poetry that in their time was set to music. And so they, they started to sing out of their angst and out of their pain. And there's this psalm, Psalm 137, that was written right during this time as they, they go into Babylon and they sit down by this river. And it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion's just another way to refer to Jerusalem. By the rivers of Babylon, in a land that's not our own, we're in captivity, we're in exile, now we're slaves, we sat and we wept. You ever just sat and weep, or you ever just sit and weep? It says, uh, and the way the story goes with the rest of that psalm, the, the, the Babylonians were egging the Hebrew people on, the, the songwriters. They're like, hey, sing us a song, you know, sort of in a mocking way. And it says that they hung their harps up on the trees because they just couldn't sing anymore. Maybe some of you today, you feel like, I just want to hang it up. I want to hang this relationship up. I'm tired. I want to hang the job search up. It's not going to happen for me. Our, our, our finances, I'm just, I'm just hanging it up. You know, my battle with depression, I'm just hanging it up. Never just 
feel like that? If you're human, you, you probably have at one time. And now we're starting to connect in a deeper way and see through the lens of what the ancient Israelites maybe were going through a little bit when we start to connect to this idea of before and after because they had a before. They had a before that was glorious. They were the nation on the earth. They were the light of the world and the other nations looked to them and they saw this interaction with this God that was amazing and was blessing them. Like, Matt, what is this all about? And people came from all around the world to listen and to learn. And that was their before. But now, all of that's gone. And they're living in exile. And they're longing to be rescued. They're longing for a new exodus. There's two working themes in the Hebrew scriptures. There's Exodus. So you remember that story about them coming up out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and that whole thing? There's Exodus. And the other big motif or theme in the Old Testament is exile. There's Exodus and exile. So they had the rescue, and now they're in exile again. And they're praying for a second Exodus. They're praying for another leaving, a coming back home, a redeeming, a rescuing. And maybe, maybe your journey with God has been a little bit like that. Like you look back and you go, man, I remember. I remember what God had done in my life. I remember how he redeemed me or I remember how he made me new or how he, he rescued that relationship or whatever it is. I can remember that story and now I'm here. And I need God to work again in my life and I'm waiting and I'm wondering. And this is right where the ancient Israelites are. There was actually three mini second uh, exoduses. There were were three waves of people over about 100 years that went back into Jerusalem. One of those waves, uh, they went back in, and you can read about it in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, and it's all about the rebuilding of the temple. And so they rebuild a second temple. The first temple was gone. It was destroyed, the Temple of Solomon, and now they have a new temple. And it says when when they laid the foundations of the new temple... The young people rejoiced. They're like, yes, we're being blessed. We're back in the land. We're going to have this second temple. Yes, our identity has returned. Our blessing has returned. God is leading us out. But it also says that the older people wept. Young people rejoice. The older people wept because they remembered the first temple. And the second temple wasn't anything like the first one. The first one was grand. And it says when they dedicated that temple that they were worshiping God and God's presence was so thick. There was this thick cloud in the temple and they actually just had to step back and they had to stop. God, is, his presence is so powerful. It's here. It's real. And we just have to step back. There's no evidence that there was ever a cloud in the second temple. They, they, they dedicate it, and, and there's a big celebration, and they, they are blessed by God, but it's nothing like the before. And so they're still perpetually in this state of exile. They're back in the land, but there's still this sense of exile in their brains. And that's true all the way up through the time of Jesus, because they never rule themselves. They're ruled by the Romans, and before that, they're ruled by the Greeks, And before that, they're ruled by the Babylonians. The Assyrians came in around 740 B.C. and destroyed the northern kingdom, just wiped them out, left the little southern kingdom. And then there's the Persians as well. 
And so they're in this state of exile. And what we've been saying is that we are in a state of exile as well. Right here, 2017. When we look out the window and we see tragedy almost every single day in the news, when we look at our relationships, when we look sometimes into our own heart, we realize that there is just a brokenness. So we're in this state of exile, but it's not just followers of Jesus that can claim that because I believe the story of humanity goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 in the scriptures. And it says in Genesis chapter 1 that all people are created in the image of God. And they're loved unconditionally, and they're loved extravagantly. We were not made for this level of brokenness in our world today. So in a sense, we all live in exile. And we ask the same question that the ancient people asked. God, why am I here? What are you doing? Why me? Why now? And how do I live with faith in exile? How do I get through the aftermath? And that's what I want to share just a little bit about for a, with a new character this morning. We've been going through these old uh, characters from the Old Testament, Daniel, and we talked about Joseph, and we talked about Rakshak and Benny. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And, 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 so, and so I want to bring another one up. His name's Nehemiah, and the book of Nehemiah is found, basically, if you go to the middle of the Bible and you kind of turn left, it's bring your Bible to church month, I hear. Pretty cool thing. Or if you have a Bible on the seat, we have some page numbers. Or if you have the Bible app, we always include a few extras on the Bible app. So download that and you can follow along. I want to look at Nehemiah chapter 1, and most of it's a prayer. So we're going to look at the heart of Nehemiah, who was a leader during one of these uh, trips back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is responsible for rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. The temple had gone unprotected for about 90 years, and now here comes Nehemiah. And he's going to replace the wall and the dignity of this ancient city. Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, In the month of Kezlev... In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. A remnant is a small representative. And a remnant, there's actually a whole remnant theology through the scriptures. The remnant, what God does for the remnant, God longs to do for the rest. And so there's a small group of people living in Jerusalem. Remember, they're the vulnerable, the poor of the poor. And God begins to send people back to them. The temple is rebuilt. He begins to bless them. And it's like a precursor. It's a symbol. It's a sign of what God wants to do for Israel during this time. And here's the report. It says, They said to me, Those who who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Maybe you felt like that. Maybe in your life you're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and, it ga- and its gates have been burned with fire. This is not a good report. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And you sense the connection between Nehemiah and the ancient Israelites who long before were taken out of Israel to Babylon and sat down and wept by the rivers of Babylon, who hung up their harps. He's connecting in the story here. 
and he just weeps over the situation. For some days I mourned and fasted. Fasted means he, he gave up food so, so that he could focus, so that he could really think about this. God, what's going on here? And he prayed before the God of heaven. Verse 5, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and, the eyes, and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your, that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there. And bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about bringing them home. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people. There's this personal thing that he's talking to God about. They are yours. They belong to you, God. Your servants and your people. Whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. He's reflecting back on the Exodus. Remember how you saved them. Saved them once again. That's what his hope is. And so he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who was this man? He says, I was cupbearer to the king. He's talking about the king. He's getting ready to make a big request. But before we get to that, I think one of the first observations about this passage is that power, position, and influence, whether it's economic power or whether it's this sort of social influence or whether it's political position and power, is leveraged for those in the margins, especially the most vulnerable. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. The king of Persia at this time. Persia is the greatest strength on the earth. This is the height of their empire. He's 800 miles now from Jerusalem. Babylon was about 200. Now he's 800 miles away. And he's in the inner circle. He's got the ear of the king, the most powerful person on the planet. He's an advisor. He's not just like taste testing for poison. I mean, he's an advisor. He's got some influence here, and he wants to use that influence for that remnant, the poorest of the poor, the hurting that are back in Jerusalem. And when he finds out the news, he, he just weeps. His heart is broken. What, what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? One of the lessons, and we've been, we've been going through these different lessons over the last four weeks where, where Pastor Brad has been giving us some practical things to hold on to. One of the practical things to hold on to, it's actually counterintuitive, but when living in exile, let your heart be broken. 
I mean, it's sort of antithetical to the way that we think. We live in Folsom, man, in this region here, this Sacramento region. We're supposed to insulate ourselves, insulate our heart. We don't want to be broken. We want to be strong. And, oh, man, God says, no, there are some things in this world that ought to just break our hearts. And it ought to motivate us into action. And this is what happens to Nehemiah. What breaks your heart today? When I was in college and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I was working a summer job at a, at a daycare in a preschool. And so I was the PE teacher, so I would take all the kids out and play Red Rover, Red Rover, and, you know, all, all, these, all these great games. And it was fun, and, and, and we were loud, and I got to be outside all day, and I loved it. And I had some middle school students that, that were part of my class as well. And one day I noticed that this one girl who was always in the middle of the game, uh, you know, uh, always sort of very competitive. She was off to the side, and she was just crying. And so I went over, and I said, I said, what's wrong? And I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't equipped for it. But she just unloaded on me. I mean, she unloaded about mom and stepdad and about her birth father who had abandoned and was gone and just this story from this seventh grade girl weeping. And I didn't, I didn't know how to help her, but my heart broke that day. And it's one of the contributing factors why I went into youth ministry and why I love students. I love seeing young people healthy and their families healthy. About a year later, I was standing in front of about 250 of my classmates. I was graduating. And when you go to a Bible college, they do these silly things where you have to give a senior sermon. And so I'm up there, and I'm giving the senior sermon. You know, I'm going to go into ministry, and all the professors are in the back going, okay, what did we teach this guy? You know, uh, let's, let's sort of rake him over the coals a little bit. And all the students are out there, and I'm, I'm teaching, and, and I'm nervous, and I'm not really sure what I should say and what I shouldn't say. But about halfway through, there was this amazing sense of joy and freedom. And it dawned on me that my heart was so broken that people would know the story of the scriptures, that they would know that there's a God who loves them no matter what. There's a God that has come for them. There's a God that's pursuing them. There's a God that looks at them right where they're at and says, man, you're my child. I love you. I died for you. And the Bible makes me mad sometimes. It confuses me sometimes. It confounds me sometimes. I'm like, I don't get it. This says this and this says this. But I know that I want to enter the story. And I know that I want to do that in community. And my heart broke that day. About nine months later, I was on this trip and I was in this place of extreme poverty with about 15 others and we were there and we were trying to help in practical ways and trying to just love and pray and 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 i saw i saw connections being made and i saw eyes that were open because sometimes you just need to be there to see it for yourself to to feel it to smell the smells and to hear the sounds and to be there and it was the first of about 20 trips that I've led over the years. What breaks your heart and how does it steer you into action? 
You know, most of you probably aren't, aren't in college today. You're not trying to figure out what to do with your life. But I found that again and again, I've had to come back and go, God, what's breaking my heart now? And how will you steer me this year? As you look out at our world today and the people around you and the relationships that you're in, sometimes we call it the oikos, the household. What's breaking your heart? Let it steer you to action. When living in exile, let your heart be broken. Two more quick observations from the story. One, an uh, an observation is that in this story, Nehemiah's prayer and the way that he prays, he never blames others for his problem. I mean, that's a remarkable thing because we like to play the blame game. You know, if it wasn't for my boss or if it wasn't for that person, if it wasn't for what happened to me, and sometimes things just happen in life, and I totally get that. But in this case, Nehemiah, he knew how the story was going to go. And he says, I've acted wickedly. My family's acted wickedly. My people have acted wickedly. And he just comes before God in this amazing state of humility. And that's always a great place to start when we're living in exiles to, to say, you're God and I'm not, and I'm, I'm just going to humble myself before you. But the beautiful thing about this prayer is that Nehemiah does that. And at the very same time, he's got this amazing courage. He's got the guts to ask for the moon. I mean, he asks for it all. He wants to go back. He wants to build a wall. I mean, there's all sorts of things that he's thinking about. He's like, man, God, there's this one person between me and Jerusalem and all this, and it's this king, and I need you to work. And so Nehemiah has this humility, but he has this courage as well. And when we know that God loves us, when we know that God is a God who really does wants to, want to bless us, we will come and we will ask for the moon, but we will also do it with an open hand. You know, some of you have kiddos and they come to you and they ask for all sorts of crazy things. You know, around November, they start asking for just about the moon, right? And you get it. And, and you get that they have the courage to come and do that because they know that you love them. When we get connected to God's love for us, which is, I think, the hardest thing for humans to do. And that's why I always, always repeat it and talk about it. And when 1,100 children are here on campus this weekend, and me and Pastor John and Pastor Brad are going to be talking about God, we're going to be emphasizing his love for them, his no matter what love. If they forget everything else, I want them to remember that. Because if we start to get in touch with that in a healthy way, we will have humble courage before God. And this is Nehemiah. So for us in 2017, when living in exile, humble yourself courageously before God. How do you need God these days? What would it look like for you to ask for the moon, but have an open hand when you do it? God wants you to come to him. Jesus says, come to your father who is good. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. I mean, we as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts. We're not going to give him a snake if he asks for a loaf of bread. It's kind of a weird, ancient, you know. We're not going to give him peas if he wants pizza. You know, I I don't know what, what it would be. But God knows what we need. And so he says, come and ask. 
The writer of the Hebrews said it this way. I love this. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Humble yourselves courageously before God. And so maybe, maybe you want that child to come back home. Maybe you want that relationship, that marriage, that family unit to be repaired. Maybe, maybe you want that job that's just you. It's your design. It's your gifting. Uh, you will feel the joy of life when you're able to head in that direction. Ask for the moon like this. Because the reality is, is that sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says not yet. And sometimes God says no, and we don't always know why. That's why we're not doing a series called Living with Certainty in Exile. We're doing a series called Living with Faith in Exile. And I'm not sure why the story goes the way that it goes. Nehemiah goes on to put his faith in action, and it could have got him killed. He basically prays for about four months, and then he comes up with a plan and said, detailed plan. And then there's this one day where he has to approach the king. Now, this is the king. He's in charge. Nehemiah's his slave. He may be in the inner circle, but he's his slave. They're 800 miles from home, and there's this city. He wants to go rebuild the wall. He wants to rebuild a city that has a reputation for rebelling against every authority that's ever been over it. Are you kidding? This is a huge, big request on Nehemiah's part. He doesn't know if God's going to come through or not. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Now, if you read the whole story, the wall gets built. But that doesn't always happen for us, does it? Sometimes things go from bad to worse. And the scriptures are honest about that. And we don't always know why. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 11. There's this hall of faith, this hall of fame of faith, where all of these Old Testament characters are being talked about for their amazing faith and how God came through. And then at the end of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, but some faced jeers and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. That's another way to say what Pastor Brad's been saying. Our citizenship is in heaven. The way that the world's broken is not worthy of us. It's not what we were made for. It says they wandered in deserts and mountains and living in caves and in holes in the ground. And when I read that, I say, what do I do with that? What do I do when things just aren't adding up? Well, one of the challenges of, of, of teaching on one chapter in a, in a big giant book or, or even a small book is that you sort of have to read the whole book. I read for you chapter one, but you sort of have to read the book to pick up on the themes and, and what's going on. And it's really easy to miss some of the themes if you're not careful. But one of the big themes of the book of Nehemiah 
is that Nehemiah was never really alone. I mean, he built a team, and they went back, and he, they, he gathered people that were there and built a bigger team, and they did this work together. At one point, they were halfway through finishing the wall, and they had these people that were attacking them and were lying about them, and they, they were lying to the king about them. Things got, got really scary for a while, and they felt like quitting because when you're halfway through a job, maybe we ought to just quit and you know throw in the towel, but it says that they had a tool in one hand, and they had a sword in the other hand, and they were just going to come together as a community and get this done. Nehemiah was never alone. When living in exile, live in community. You were made for community, to know and be known, to love and be loved. And I want to acknowledge that that's way more difficult than we realize sometimes. A few weeks ago, I, I, I took one of these personality assessments. You ever do that? I've taken them a lot over the years, and this one told me what I already knew and what every other assessment told me, that, Sean, you are an introvert. Any other introverts around, you know, which means you need some solitude so that you can kind of get some energy and you can kind of come back to community and be a blessing to the community, and if you don't get that solitude, then you're not a blessing to the community, you know, And, and that's just the way it is. You need some time away, and I was thinking about that and the fact that In a church this size, I can't imagine coming in for the first time. Like through those doors out there and through the lobby, as an introvert looking around going, how in the world do I fit in here? How do I connect? How do I belong here? Even for you extroverts, it can be a daunting task. I had it easy. Nine years ago when I showed up, I had a job here. But I have, to, I have to tell you, even then, it, it was a challenge. It was a lot of work. So let me encourage you to smile at one another as much as you can, even you introverts. I know it's hard sometimes. <laughs> Reach out, love one another. Some of you, your friend card is so full that there's no room for somebody else to belong. And I, I get that there's seasons in life like that. But as a community... I want to be a place where anybody can belong. That's what we say. Lakeside could be a place where anybody could belong. I was sharing my story a couple nights ago with a group of people, you know, the, the Jesus story, how I, how I came to faith in, in Jesus and began to follow him. And I realized again that I was allowed to belong to community long before I ever believed what that community believed. I had this community of people that just accepted me. They prayed for me. They prayed with me. They accepted me just as I was. And I was was pretty raw. I was pretty messy. I was allowed to belong before I believed. And through that community, I came to believe. When living in exile, live in community together. We need one another. Let your heart be broken. Come before God with humble courage. And live in community. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks so much for your amazing love for us. For each person here. God, every single person here has a story. They're on this journey. They're somewhere between the before and the future. They're in this after. Maybe some of them are in this aftermath. Maybe for some of them, uh, the after is beautiful. And thank you for that. But God, you 
are a God that can do things that only you can do. You can change a human heart. You can restore. You can heal. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that you would do all of that. God, that as we sang earlier when we were singing about you speaking to us, that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be open, that our ears would be open to what you have to say to us, that we can live with an amazing faith in this journey of exile. God, we know that you're coming back for us. We know that heaven will come down to earth. We, we, we know the end of the story. And we're thankful, Lord, that you're a God that loves us every step of the way in between. And so we praise you and thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.